Hello everyone and welcome to The Stagey Place, the podcast where we here chat to those who make the magic that you see on stage from behind the scenes. From writers to directors, producers to stage managers, lighting, sound and video designers to technicians. And on today's episode, episode 101, 101, we are joined by writer and performer Nikhil Palmer, who is bringing back their critically acclaimed show Invisible to the Bush Theatre from the 23rd of May until the 9th of June before having its New York premiere as part of the Brits of Broadway season at 59E59 Theatre from the 13th of June until the 2nd of July 2023. It was an incredibly exciting opportunity to talk to Nick Hill ahead of going back into rehearsals for the Bush Theatre run as well as talking about what it's like taking the show to New York and how audiences will engage the comedy aspects of Invisible. Always really exciting when you get to chat with the writer and performer of a new piece because you get to find out the evolution of the play at the same time and so it's just a really fascinating chat today with Nikhil and I was really grateful of him to take the time out of his day to chat with me for this episode. So whether you're in the car, on a walk, having a cup of tea or just taking a break from your daily lives, I hope you enjoy episode 101 of The Stagey Place with writer and performer Nikhil Palmer. Hello, Nikhil, and welcome to The Stagey Place. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, Nikhil. Today we are going to be talking about Invisible, which is back at the Bush Theatre after being at the Bush last year, from the 23rd of May until the 9th of June. But what's also really exciting is that only like four days after, you'll then be opening the show again, but this time in New York for the Brits off-Broadway season, which is amazing. I must just start this interview now by asking you, how does that feel? It's sort of not really real yet. I think because we haven't started rehearsals yet for the play to go back at the bush. I'm yeah. sort of not in the in the zone for it yet. So I've not really thought about the process of transfer. I think I'm concentrating on doing it at the bush again. And then it'll sort of slowly become real over the course of that. But I'm, yeah, I'm so excited. Can't wait to do it. I've never worked in New York before. It's always been a dream. I'm really excited. And like you just said there, obviously we're recording at the moment. You haven't started rehearsals yet to then go back into the bush. But what will the rehearsal process be like this time around, having done the show once before? Is it just to kind of reconfigure where everything was within the show for you? Yeah, exactly. I think so. Georgia Green is the director of the play and she directed it last time and is doing so again. And I think, yeah, we're going to try and pretty much stick to what we did last time. I think we're not going to be too prescriptive about it. If there's certain blocking that feels like it needs to change for for whatever reason, we're going to sort of go with the flow. Yeah, it worked quite well last time. And I think we're doing it in a week this time, the rehearsals. And last time we had slightly longer. So we don't want to introduce too many new things just for the sake of it. If it's not broken, don't fix it is the sort of ethos that we're going with. Yeah. Well, Nikhil, we'll be talking a lot about Invisible today, and I'm very excited to talk about it. I know this time around, I'm actually getting to see the show as well. But Nikhil, first of all, what I want to ask you is your journey into theatre and what theatre was like with your upbringing. So where did theatre start for you? I mean, to be honest, I didn't go to the theatre an awful lot as a kid. It wasn't, I'm from Manchester. There are theatres in Manchester, but we were, you know, we're on the suburbs. And it wasn't something that my parents were particularly interested in. They only really go now either to see me in something or because I'm dragging them there for their birthdays, which is my tactical way of going to the theatre, is to take them along with me. Yeah, I mean, we went and saw plays with school every now and then. I think I really started to get into it when I went to uni. I came to uni in London and I sort of made a concerted effort. I knew I wanted to act and possibly write. And I sort of made a concerted effort to try and just see everything I could 
as often as I could. And that's when I sort of, you know, initially was this sort of strategically, I need to see everything. I need to know what being made and which actors are working and what, what's going on. But then started to love it genuinely and then started to make it, you know, write plays pretty much after I graduated from uni. Yeah, that's the kind of journey. Yeah. And who's been like your inspirations then throughout your journey, obviously, with writing? Like, what's your writing style like? Is there anybody that you can describe yourself as, you know, being influenced by? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm obsessed with dialogue. Dialogue is like the thing that I, when I first started writing, so I originally started writing screenwriting before I started playwriting. And before I even knew how to do anything, what I would do is I'd come up with two characters and just get them talking and just write pages and pages of dialogue and just see how it sounded and see how it felt. I love the like the rhythm of dialogue. And I think that my favourite playwrights are the ones that there's a definite rhythm to it. So I think Mamet, David Mamet was, was really big. Harold Pinter, Jez Butterworth, Martin McDonough. Those guys were kind of the ones that I read early on. Martin McDonough particularly, I think I read Pillow Man quite early on when I was you know, writing and just there's a certain cadence and a, and, a, and a rhythm that you can tell if it's wrong and I think there's something nice when you're writing when you read through the scene again it can feel right as well look right and I think that's a way that I like to write is I'm very attentive I think to how the words fall next to each other and yeah and I I tend to write like scenes with two characters talking but quite quickly at one another so often like one word two words each and in that rhythm is so important and it yeah it really elevates it and 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 particularly with comedy it can make something so much funnier if the rhythm is just right. Yeah. And so obviously you are the writer of Invisible as well as the performer of the piece as well. So talk to me a little bit about the starting process of this the first time around that it was at the Bush Theatre. Did you have to pitch the show or did they come to you and say, we want something for our season? I submitted Invisible to the Bush. They do an open submissions process every year. I submitted it. It was the first play I'd written and it was kind of, I honestly had no, I didn't really think it was any good to me. And that's not, I'm not being false and modest. I genuinely had no conception of it was any good. I liked the story. That, yeah, I submitted it in their open submissions and they liked it. I met with Dee, Deirdre O'Halloran, who's the literary manager there. They put me on their emerging writers group, which is like a yearly residency scheme that they do where they take six writers. We, we did it virtually because it was during the pandemic. You meet once a month and you do these like nice three hour Zooms where you just kind of get to know each other and talk about what you're writing and they help you develop your second play as a part of that year-long process and at the end of the year or towards the end we kept going back to Invisible in conversations with the Bush and they kept saying that they they liked it they just didn't have a place for it at that time last year was their 50th anniversary season and they decided they'd do a, a season of original programming in the studio which they don't usually do and, and they asked if Invisible could be a part of that and I jumped at it. Yeah, that is incredible. And so let's talk a little bit more about Invisible then. You said that you enjoyed the story of it. So talk to us about the story. Who do we meet in Invisible and where are they at the start of the show? So Invisible is a one-man show. I am said one man and I play about 12 different characters but there is a main guy and his name is Zion so Zion is a, a British Indian actor in his mid-20s for obvious reasons Invisible set in a world in which Islamic fundamentalism doesn't exist anymore so that's the kind of opening premise we don't really find out why but it's not important so it did exist but seven years before the play starts it was wiped off the face of the earth and Zion is this actor who was only really ever employed as an actor to play terrorists that was all, all the work he could get was as a as, as terrorist number one despite the fact that he's not muslim and i'm not muslim either he would only get parts as islamic fundamentalists and so when that ended slowly the phone stopped ringing over time and meanwhile his personal life is in disarray he's got a bereavement close family member who passed away recently he's got an ex-girlfriend he's broken up with you know he's still maybe has feelings for he's not working and he's 
kind of a bit of an outcast in his own family. And so you meet this guy who's kind of in a crisis, but uses humor as his way to defend against it, who starts to then connect the dots and think that since the end of Islamic fundamentalism, brown people haven't been having a good time. And actually, when white people feared brown people because they thought they were all terrorists, life was actually better because at least they saw brown people. And he starts to think that since they stopped seeing brown people as a threat, they stopped seeing brown people at all. And that brown people have been in fact become invisible, which is a sort of theory he formulates over the first act of the play. And it leads him to a like somewhat problematic solution, which I won't say because it's a bit of a spoiler, but that takes him down a road, which sort of takes the play from a more comedic space into less so, as, as you realise that this guy's actually in quite a lot of pain. And it's kind of about that. So that's really interesting then, because there are two points there that you've just spoken about. Obviously, you were saying that when you were growing up and beginning to write, you were writing about dialogue. And then this character this is a one person show but you play 12 other people is it almost monologue with 12 other people or is there dialogue between characters and you're jumping between there's loads of dialogue basically yeah. the, the real answer is that this was a TV script prior oh. to the play TV script was the first thing I ever wrote was this TV script called Invisible yeah. you know it got me my agent it got me my first few jobs as a, as a screenwriter but no one ever wanted to take that script as was yeah. and I always kind of regretted that because I, I thought it was a really cool idea and it was the one I was always closest to and after the advice of my agent we discussed maybe this character needs a good hour to like get into why he does what he does and let's like bring him out over this over this hour long period so I wrote this draft of the play which is what I sent to the bush so a lot of the scenes in the play are actually pretty much taken from that TV script right. there's some changes but you know there are five six seven eight page scenes where it's me talking as Zion and Ella his ex-girlfriend or Zion and his mom or Zion and his housemate which as an actor is actually really a massive challenge like how am I gonna play all the parts in a conversation that yeah. I, I, and and allow the audience to connect and understand what's going on and I didn't know if it could be done but my director Georgia assured me that it could be we just needed to figure out a smart way of doing it and yeah hopefully we did yeah and something else that you pointed out earlier on is that you felt like the first half of this play is quite comedic and then the second half you feel the pain of the character so when you were performing this at the bush the first time around what was the audience response like to it like is it funny in the first half do you find people laughing and then slowly it becomes like people are like sat back or like really engaging and listening as it becomes like less funny yeah, it's so interesting. It, it was one of the things I learned really early on in the run was that, I, I mean, I think from an ego point of view, I was so concerned and just as a human that no one would laugh sure. that those first few shows, I hit the comedy beats as hard as I could. And I, I really made sure that it was working on the comedic level because, yeah. you know, I think that the character literally says within the first few pages, he tells the audience, you know, I'm funny. Uh, you know, and, and he, he makes a joke about it. And if they don't laugh when you say I'm funny, it becomes the most awkward moment in a room ever. So I was like, you're going to have to be so funny in these first few pages because if they're not laughing, this is just going to be torturous. Yeah. To the extent, though, that I think I did it possibly to the detriment of the drama at the end of the piece. I think I was so worried about it being funny that I didn't necessarily take into account the fact that when it does switch yeah. and the tone sort of changes, the audience they're not aware of what's coming. So they're sort of along for the, the ride, at, you know, experiencing it in real time. They don't know that the tone is shifting unless you help them on that journey. So I think one of the things I learned as we as we did the play was to trust that the play was working comedically because audiences were laughing and we were very fortunate that most of the audience seemed to like enjoy it comedic, uh, on a comedic level and then hit those beats that exist in the first act where we're sort of hinting at the pain that he's in but yeah. not making a point of it and then as the 
play goes into the second act and things become more more dramatic, it's not so much of a surprise to the audience when that happens because they sort of saw the seeds of it early on, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. So, Nikhil, you finished the show at the Bush Theatre for its Mm. first time around. And then tell me what the process is like for you to then find out that it's been picked for the Brits of Broadway season in New York. How does that come about? Who contacts you and tells you this? It was, annoyingly, it was sort of like a slow burn. It was like several like emails which gave like tiny bits of information. So there was no one moment where I like jumped in the air and yelled, I'm going to New York, which was what I imagined those moments yeah. would be. So the first inkling was when David Byrne of the New yeah. Diorama, who co-runs Brits Off Broadway Festival with Valerie Day, who is the New York representative. David came to the play on the penultimate evening and I knew he was in because my agent had told me that he was going to be there and that he ran Brits Off Broadway. But at this point it was like, you know, it's it's a fairly remote possibility. So I just did my usual and did the show and it was actually my favourite, I would say my favourite show was that night it just happened to be a really fun one and I think I got to a place emotionally that I was really happy with as an actor and yeah and I met him afterwards and he said oh I, I'm David Byrne we take a few plays a year to New York a part of this festival we think it'd be a really good fit but you know we need to let you know because we're going to go to Edinburgh Fringe and see if this plays there and, and then make our list so it was all like it's a good play could be a good fit but we'll let you know and then kind of nothing for about two three months I think and then I got an email saying, is Nikhil still interested in this? But at no point did anyone say, it's happening if he says yes. It was more like, is Nikhil interested? And I was like, well, yeah, I am interested. I just don't know. Are you saying it's on or it's not? So there's a lot of moving parts that basically need to fall into place, like scheduling of all the other plays. Uh, You need a producer to come on board and and help fund it. And, And David was, yeah, so kind to say that there was a slot for it if we could find a producer that was going to take it. And then Amina Hamid, fantastic producer, came on board pretty much with like a day to go before we had to tell them whether we were going to take the slot or not. Amina came in like a superhero and and said uh, she would take it. Yeah, that was, I think that was around November time. And then we did, you know, all the visa applications and all that. So there was still a, still several steps to go even from then. But so it's been about six months that we sort of known that it was on the cards. And yeah, I'm so grateful to David and Val for offering. Yeah, and that's the thing though. Yeah, you can say yes to the show going there, but it is all those parts. So it's like fundraising, especially, you know, for producers, yeah. for such a big project as well is is huge and it's fascinating. Obviously, you probably can't say for certain, but how do you feel like New York audiences might respond to this? Because comedy in England mm. and comedy in America is very different. Like, how are you feeling? Like, are you going to push those first couple of performances, do you think, in New York like you did? <laughs> originally here in London almost certainly I mean I'm going to tell myself I won't and then I'll get there and I'll lose my nerve I think yeah. I don't know you know it's 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 going to be a weird transition I think I sort of flip between the two sides part of me is like we're so globalized I consume so much American comedy I would say even possibly more than British comedy in terms of what I watch like you know Veep and and a succession written by British writers but you know the comedy from that and then Judd Apatow's films and all those kind of like those are the things that I grew up on comedically and so there's definitely influences from from america in american comedy in my work anyway so you'd hope that that therefore means there's some ability for it to translate but then there's also a lot of stuff about accents like because i play so many different characters yeah i gave every character a different accent pretty much and most of them are british accents and then there are jokes about the accents 
in the accents right. of the characters in it. I would forgive any American audience for not knowing what on earth the cultural baggage of a Liverpool accent is. They probably won't know. So I don't know whether those are going to translate or if they'll just think, why is he speaking slightly unclearly now that he's doing this accent or like yeah. my terrible version of a Scottish accent. I don't know if they're going to get it. I guess I guess I'll sort of have to just be bold with it and be brave with it and just do the, the version of it that I'm happiest with and, and hope for the best. Yeah, it's a lottery. Yeah. And talk to me then about the rest of the team that are on Invisible. We've already talked about Georgia, who is is the director. Who else have we got on the team in Invisible? So we've got a fantastic team, all of the same people that worked on it last time are back. So that's Georgia Green directing, Laura Howard does the lighting, Bella Keir does the sound, Georgia Wilmot does the set design, Lois Syme is our stage manager, and Amina Hamid is obviously producing, and then D. O'Halloran at the Bush was the dramaturg, the best team, and Nikita Karia and Oscar Rowan are producing at the Bush as well. Yeah, the whole team at the Bush are just amazing. Yeah, and obviously that in-house team that you have, are they coming over to New York with you as well, do you know? Georgia, the director's coming, Amina's going to come, I think Laura lighting is coming and maybe some of the others going to try and come and visit but yeah there's a there's a small team of us going so i won't be on my own yeah and finally just the last question about invisible is what are you most excited about bringing invisible back whether or not this is at the bush or in new york is there something that you're really excited about this time around I think last time around, it was my first play as a writer and as an actor, my first professional play. I'd only done TV and film before it. So I, I, it was such a new experience. I think I'm going to be nervous either way, but I was so nervous last time. I had no conception of what it was or what it could be or how it would be received. And I think I was very susceptible to what I considered to be the reaction it was through reviews or the audience, which, you know, was always going to happen. But I think this time around, I'm really looking forward to, I know what it is and I know its flaws and its merits. And I know I'm really proud of it as a piece of theatre. And I think we've made something that's really funny and moving. And the people that I respect and love and care about really enjoyed it last time around. So I think this time around, I'm, I'm really forward to just doing it without the pressure of like, this is going to be the, the the reason I'm happy or I'm not happy for the next three weeks. I think yeah. I'm going to just have to enjoy it for what it is. I get to do it for six weeks. Weeks and it's fun to just act for six yeah. weeks. You get to do it, and to do it in New York is like, as I said earlier, it's like a dream. So I'm really excited. And it's a nice routine as well. Once you're in the show, and you're just like, I just need yeah. to get up. You know, whether you've got matinee days or evenings, like you know what you're doing for the rest of the day. You just yeah. got to fill that daytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll find something to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, Nikhil, I've got two final questions for you. They're the questions that we always ask every guest that come onto the podcast. The first question is about advice and advice that our guests may have for people listening who may want to get into the area of the industry that our guests are in. So obviously for you as a writer or as a performer, what advice would you have for people who maybe want to get into writing plays? Getting into writing plays. I mean, every, everyone's different. So you'll know just straight away when you're listening to this, what, what kind of person you are. I am a bit of a nerd with stuff. I find it difficult to write for any medium unless I know that medium at the back of my hand. And I didn't even think about writing a play until I'd seen like a, an incredible number of plays over several years, just watching, 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 because I needed to be immersed in it in order to even think that way. So I think it sounds obvious but like seeing everything that you can and, and finding very quickly, being diagnostic about it, finding what it is about those plays that you like and don't like and being privately harsh critic of stuff. If something isn't working, even if you love other elements of it, think about why it's not working, what you would have done differently. And I think all of it informs your work. You know, from when you watch something, I watched Retrograde last weekend mm -hmm. at the Kiln Theatre and I left thinking like, I would love nothing more than to write a play like that. I thought it was just so brilliant and it was 
about things that I'm so passionate about and that I love. And yeah, I think when you watch something that's inspiring, it'll give you inspiration to go and write something that you think you can do in a similar space. So yeah, see everything. Is there. Yeah. And that's actually, like you just said that it's not actually just seeing everything, but seeing everything of the genre that you like. Like, you know, someone's not going to write a play about football unless they know football, like the back of their hands. Like you want to watch stuff that you're interested in, but also interested in writing for that genre which is really yeah and, and don't worry if like if you know if, if you're not into Shakespeare yeah that's fine don't don't watch Shakespeare but there's there's so many things that you would be interested in that's different or, and you know there may be a, an adaptation of a Shakespeare play that is something to your fancy you know don't deep it if it's not something you're interested in yeah absolutely thank you Nikhil our final question then on the podcast is the title of this podcast and that's the stagey place and what I love to know about all of my guests is where their stagey place is so, Nikhil, this could be an inspiration for you. It could be, you know, Pinta or Martin, as we said earlier on, people who have inspired your writing. It could be a theatre, maybe that's programmed your work. It could be the Bush Theatre, where Invisible is now and was before. Yeah, it could literally be anything. It could be the rehearsal room or it could be the place where you're writing your plays and you feel the most inspired. So for you, Nikhil, whereabouts is your stagey place? I think it's a boring answer, but it has to be the outside little garden bit of the bush. I think the bush, that's where, well, last time we did it, it was in the summer and we did two weeks of rehearsals and three weeks of the show. And it's extremely tiring, but... I would sit in the garden out there and have a cigarette and a drink after the play. Non-alcoholic, I should add. Yeah, de-stress. And it's, yeah, yeah, I was there last night, actually, and it it brings back incredible memories. Yeah, yeah, I've been to the bush plenty of times. I did a show in the main stage as well as the stage manager. And Mm. yeah, the outside, the greenery and everything, obviously, it's right by the studio as well, which is where Invisible is going back into. And it's just a lovely space in the sunshine and I know that we're having the best weather at the moment around the UK and in London so it feels like the best place to be but Nikhil that brings us to the end of our episode today talking about Invisible so again Invisible is returning for a limited run at the Bush Theatre from the 23rd of May until the 9th of June before then heading over to New York from the 13th of June until the 2nd of July for the Brits of Broadway season at 59E59 Theatre Nikhil, thank you so much for coming on to the stage of place. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks. Thank you. And so there we go. That was my interview with Nikhil Palmer, writer and performer of Invisible, the critically acclaimed show which is coming back to the Bush Theatre studio from the 23rd of May until the 9th of June before having its New York premiere at 59E59 Theatre from the 13th of June until the 2nd of July. We will have all of the ticket information in our episode notes wherever you are streaming this platform. So whether or not you're living in the UK or you're close to New York, you'll be able to watch this show if you just click the links that are available with this episode. Once again, I'd love to thank Nikhil so much for coming on to the podcast. It was a delight to talk with him and his experiences in theatre, as well as what he's excited about for bringing Invisible not only back to London, but to New York for new audiences as part of the Brits of Broadway season. So that's all from me for this week's episode. My name's been Elliot. You've been listening to The Stagey Place. And until next time, I hope you're keeping safe and staying stagey. Goodbye.